going to be in James chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13. And we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. But the specific verse that we want to get to um, is verse 16. And this has, we're going to cover two one another commands tonight. And the first is uh, to confess your sins and then to pray for one another. So verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, this passage of Scripture is is very hotly contested. There's a lot of difficult spots in here. And I I will just be up front. I am just going to use these words so you know, I don't know. I'm saying that right now on some aspects of this, I don't know. I don't have a dogmatic stance on some of the issues that come up in here. And one of the things that can happen is we get so focused on some of the questions that arise naturally in the text that we we actually miss the admonition that we're to be praying for each other and confessing to one another. So let's hang on to that as we look at some of the other issues that come up in this text. But the main thing is this, is that when we leave here, we want to remember most importantly that we're called on to pray for one another and that we are to confess our sins to one another. And we also see that in this passage, it does address prayer, not only generally that we are to pray for one another in sickness, but it also addresses us this, is that we are to pray in good times and bad times. If someone's cheerful, we're to pray. If someone is sick, we are to pray. If someone is afflicted, we are to pray. So let's not be difficult or thrown off target with some of the difficulties of this passage. But let me read verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Now, how often can we answer that in the affirmative? Yes, there's someone amongst us that is suffering. So let him pray. So just off of that basic statement there, is there ever a time where we should say, we don't need to gather and pray corporately as a church? No, there's always going to be that. Well, let's say that there's not. Well, look what it says next. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is there, is there going to be a time where really there's not someone amongst us cheerful? So the whole point is, is that we're continually going to the throne room of God with thanksgiving or with petitions to our Lord. Now, this idea of suffering here, it is, speaking of general suffering, it can be persecution. In fact, Many people interpret this whole entire passage based upon this word suffering as this isn't referring to physical sickness in here. I don't hold that view, but many will look at that word as being defining of this whole passage and not dealing with sickness at all. I think it's just a general word for suffering, and most Greek grammarians would agree with that. And so we talk about this idea that in suffering... Uh, When there is suffering in the church, what we need to do is be quick about gathering together for prayer. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. What an amazing statement of our God that He is merciful and that He provides comfort. Now look at what it says. Who comforts us in all our affliction. So is anyone suffering? 
Why do we go to the Lord in prayer? Because we believe God's word that says that our Father in heaven is merciful and that he provides comfort to those that are suffering affliction. And so we see this statement here that should drive us. He says, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why do we go to the Lord in prayer during difficult times and when someone is suffering? Well, God provides them with comfort. Now, because this is a general statement, if anyone is suffering, it means whatever the situation is, whatever the degree of suffering, whatever the, it's internal, it's external, whatever it is, we are driven to do something, and that is prayer. And it is not just we pray, and then we say, all right, team, break, and we go. It's ongoing, continual prayer. That's the idea of the tense here. It's persistent prayer. And there's a lot to, that Scripture says, as we'll see later, that talks about persistency in prayer. So this is persistent prayer that we are to be doing for those. Then if someone is cheerful, sing praises. Now, cheerful usually deals with some sort of inward disposition of someone or an inward experience, often because of external situations, but not always. What are we called to do when someone's cheerful? We're to go to the Lord. We're to sing praises. And singing praises here is actually related to the same idea of praying. It's the same thing. It's recognizing the Lord in His mercy. Now, how often is it that we just pray in that first part? If anyone is suffering, let him pray. But what about when someone is cheerful? Let him sing. You know, you think of Paul's admonition to preach the word in season and out of season. Pray and sing praises in season and out of season. And this is something important that we ought to note is that we are not passive. We don't just sit back and say, well, God's sovereign. He's going to take care of things. And, well, God sovereignly brought this about. He knew it was going to happen. So we're thankful This drives us to activity, doesn't it? It drives us to do something, and it it drives us to do something together. Is anyone among you? It's as if he's looking at the congregation and saying, hey, anyone among you is doing this, then what you need to do is you need to be together to pray. So this is something that drives us to gather together for a specific purpose of prayer. How many churches today do not have a Wednesday evening or a midweek prayer meeting? It could be on a Saturday, it doesn't matter. How many churches have skipped that as being unimportant? Or sometimes it's just viewed as like, ah, I don't really need to, I don't really need to do that. I've got my Sunday thing in. But actually, well, we're, not, we're not commanded to get together on a Wednesday night. It is clear we are commanded to join together for prayer whenever someone's suffering, whenever someone's cheerful. So that tells me that it needs to be a consistent part of our weekly schedule is that we need to be together for prayer. And it's in good times and it's in bad times. And like I mentioned earlier, so often we're quick to pray during suffering but not to give thanks during 
times that are cheerful. And in the church, and the life of the church, isn't it possible to have both realities of cheerfulness and suffering going on at the same time? And usually that's the case. He goes on to say, is anyone among you sick? Well, the answer is yeah. There are people that are sick amongst us. So now look what he says specifically here. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there's a couple of things I want to point out about this. Is anyone among you sick? Uh, The idea is that there's usually going to be someone sick, but what type of sickness does this seem to be? Well, let him call for the elders of the church. So the elders now are going to this person. We can assume the elders are going to this person because this person's not able to go to the elders. So it's a person that's really sick. He goes on and let them pray over him. And that, that imagery of praying over him indicates this could be a person that's bedridden. And so likely, that's what's taking place. A person's very sick. They can't leave the home. They're bedridden. So the elders are called to go over there. There's something else. What do you notice about that word elders? It's plural. It's not a single elder going to someone that's sick and praying over him, but it's a plurality of elders that are going there. And God, in his infinite wisdom, knew what it would be like in 2022, and the wisdom behind a single elder, or how unwise it is for a single elder to go and pray for someone in their home. And so there's a practicality to this, but there's a responsibility on the eldership that together, that they take that on in their shepherding to go to this person And specifically, what they're called to do is they're to anoint them with, and anoint means cover, can be used for the same word of painting, um, with them with with oil, and then to pray for them. Now, this this is the part that gets kind of controversial. What does that mean, to anoint them with oil? What did it mean in the, what did James mean by that? And, uh... Are we supposed to still do that today? That's the, those are the main questions. Well, I'll tell you which view is not correct. This is not speaking of extreme unction. And that is the Roman Catholic practice of giving someone their last rites. In fact, you could not derive this doctrine from that at all, because in this context, the elders are expecting that this person's going to get well. It's not their last rites that they're going to die there. Uh, Luther makes that very point when he is writing about the Babylonian captivity of the church, when he is railing against this. This is not a sacrament that's administered by a special single priest. This is something that was done by the elders. And and, and today when it's practiced with extreme unction, it is the idea that the person's going to die. They don't see it as being a means that God could bring about healing to someone. As a result of that idea, though, of Roman Catholicism, many after the Reformation went in the 
completely opposite direction and said, actually, uh, this anointing was how they would have brought healing. It would be like if I was, I went to someone's house and I got there and I saw what was wrong with them and I quickly diagnosed the issue and I said, you know what you need to do? You need to put ice on that. Or you, you know what you need? You need an aspirin. And because we recognize certain medicinal things today. And so many would take this as being something that would have been medicinally applied, which would have brought healing. In fact, we see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 34. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so that medicinal use of oil was certainly prevalent, during that time. But that doesn't seem to be what he's talking about here. In fact, if you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 13, you kind of see a a similar idea, almost a parallel in it, to what James is talking about. It says, and they cast out, this is Mark 6, 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So many see that as a possible parable there or parallel there. One commentator says this, Robert Plummer says, quote, the oil, both there and in James 5.14, seems to have been a visible symbolic means, uh, symbolic means of getting the sick person apart for God's miraculous intervention. Similar to way to the way that many modern Christians will place a hand on the shoulder of a person for whom they are praying. James does not emphasize anointing as an imperative act in and of itself, but specifies it as something done in the name of the Lord. That is, an action performed while calling upon the Lord to in faith to heal. So, one interpretation of what this oil is, is that it's just simply a symbolic act, of setting someone aside to pray for the Lord. And it gives the example of putting your hand upon their shoulder. If you're ever in the hospital and you're laying in a hospital bed and I go to pray with you, I'm going to grab your hand. I'm going to pray with you. And, and, and have my, There's nothing intrinsically special about that. It's just me connecting with you as I go to pray with you before our Lord and that we would enter into the throne of grace together. That's all it is. There's nothing magical about that. Nor would there have been with oil. Greg Blomberg, in his commentary on it, says, Given the overall teaching of the New Testament, in which healing is not consistently paired with anointing, we should not take this one verse as mandating that oil must accompany all prayers for the sick. In other words, when you look through the book of Acts, I don't see it anywhere. Now, that doesn't mean that this verse here doesn't mean you know, we discount it. I know many people that, will, that are faithful pastors that hold the same views on these things as I do that will actually go and take a little bottle of olive oil and put it on a drop of it on someone's head. And I, have no, I have no issue with that. And I, I don't think that that's wrong. I think it would be wrong if we saw that that action was was doing something rather than God working through prayers, God working through us doing something. And as we look at this text, I don't really see that the emphasis is on anointing with oil. 
the emphasis is on the prayer. The emphasis is on praying to the Lord. And it's in the name of the Lord. So as we think about this verse, ultimately healing is accomplished by our Lord. Not by us. It's by the Lord. The instrument is faithful prayer. And is there anything wrong with putting your hand on someone's shoulder, grabbing their hand, or putting a drop of oil on them? No, not at all. We, we would not want to make a, a rule of this, though. In verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith, this is going back to this, this, this prayer, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, again, this is a very tricky passage. How do we understand it? Some will see it um, eschatologically, in that this is talking about ultimate healing before the Lord. And maybe it, maybe it could mean that, but it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be talking actually about a person being healed. That you pray for a person and that person is healed. It seems to indicate a temporal healing. Now, we've looked at extreme unction and Roman Catholicism has done. There, there's another group we have to look at, and that is charismatic theology. And charismatic theology goes something to this, is that it is always God's will to heal a person. That is basic charismatic theology, is that it's always God's will to heal, and it's dependent upon the faith of the person. So, in other words, if Joni Erickson Tata only had enough faith, she would, she would come out of that wheelchair. That would be the statement of a charismatic theology, and I don't know of too many people more faithful than her, to be honest with you. Uh, but that's the thrust of it. So, is that true that it's God's will always for someone to be healed? There's some interesting studies when you look in the New Testament. You think of um, Epaphroditus, who was sent to Paul while he was in prison. He almost died. Paul was not able to heal him. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. If Epaphroditus, and Paul clearly had the gift of healing people. He was able to exercise that at times. You think of what took place on the island of um, Malta. And what took place there. He was able to heal the whole entire community that came to him. But Epaphroditus, he wasn't. So this was not something that Paul could just say and do. It was always according to God's will when that happened. And Paul doesn't say, hey, Epaphroditus came to me, I laid hands on him, I rubbed some oil on him, and he was back at it again. He doesn't say that. He said God had mercy on him and on me as well. And also, you think of this one thing, and this is really relevant for today, how we judge and view. And yes, I said how we judge, We are called to judge those that would say they are part of the church. How we judge charismatic theology. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm pretty sure Paul had a robust faith. 
I'm pretty sure with all that Paul had seen, he believed God could take this thorn, whatever it was, from him. But he's not able to. You think of it like today, the modern faith healer that gets sick or wears glasses or gets some sort of disease. Why, why are they not able to heal that? Do they lack, do they lack faith? You think of what happens in 2 Timothy. And by the way, I know I'm preaching to the choir here amongst us tonight on this, but look what happens in 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Well, why didn't Paul heal him if it was God's will for someone to always be healed? There's one thing that's universal for all of us, all of us will one day die. We will all die. We will die of some sort of disease of some sort. You think about Jesus at the pool of Bethesda, the invalid that was there all those years. What does it say when Jesus looks upon this one man and he heals him, but the multitudes didn't? I heard a charismatic teacher recently say this. Well, that man had faith. That man did not have faith. In fact, he goes and turns Jesus in to the authorities. Compare what happens in that healing to chapter 9, when the man is restored his sight, you'll see a very big difference in responses to Jesus. It wasn't dependent upon his faith. It was according to Christ. Now, what's interesting, if it's always the Lord's will for a person to be healed, and it's dependent upon the faith of the one being healed, what do you do with this passage in taking what it literally says? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. In other words, when Kenneth Copeland stands up there and says it's always God's will for you to be healed and he prays for you to be healed, it's actually dependent on whose faith? Old Ken's. What does that say about him? What does it say about all of those faith healers? It doesn't say that the, the, it's dependent upon that person. It says here it's dependent upon that prayer of the faithful elder or elders. This is a very dangerous theology, and we have to unfortunately deal with it because it's so prevalent in our, in our time. But what we do see is in the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so prayer and good faith, an expectation and persistently that the Lord will bring healing, it's according to the Lord's sovereign plan that they will be raised up. And I, I, again, I don't view that in, in terms of end time raising up. I think this is them getting out of bed. It's a prayer of the faith, a prayer that is within and for God's will to be done. Now, you see a connection here, and this sometimes makes people uncomfortable, but you see a connection through verse 15 and 16 of a connection between sickness and sin. If anyone has committed sins. Does, now, are there, is sickness sometimes related to sin? Well, yeah. 
it is. And right here, if anyone has committed sins, this isn't like the, the monk Luther that's thinking of the every smallest detail of sins that he could possibly think of, and then he thinks of how he had a... a, a this, is, this is known blatant sin that someone has, that someone's been living with. And so there's this idea of this connection of sin and sickness. And it shows us the, the nature, really, of actually how sin affects the whole person. We shouldn't be afraid to say that, but actually know it. Could be that the Lord's person is upon him, and that could be uh, what's causing the physical sickness in someone is that it is actually the Lord's discipline. In fact, what do we what do we read at the end of every month on Sundays? That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. draws a connection to that idea of sinfulness and sickness. But, with that being said, can we say there can be a connection to that? Yes. But should we always assume it? No. You think of Job, who was said to be righteous. The Lord was doing a work in his life, and his friend said, Job, you have, must have really blown it with sin. Job's like, I, I don't know what I did. You think of also, going back to the story of the, the blind man being healed in John chapter 9, the disciples thought that very thing. And his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they, they made an assumption about it, that, okay, this guy's blind, it must be because of sin. So, they jumped right automatically there, but look what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's another purpose. It, it wasn't because of sin that he is sick. We also must understand this, and that we're we can't assume sin. We also recognize that sometimes sickness and suffering and tragedy can be a means that God uses in our life to wake us up, to shake us up a little bit, and move us in the right direction. And so we need to also uh, be open to self-examination in things. And again, I think, I think the context makes it fairly clear, this would be something known to the person already, maybe that they're struggling with. But it's not a bad prayer to say as Psalm 139, verse 24, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lord, may you see if there's anything grievous in me. But a couple points I do want to consider in terms of the idea of sinfulness and sickness and the connection. Um, A person abuses their body. Will that catch up with them? Yeah. It will catch up with them. Whether it's food, drink, medication, drugs, whatever it is, um, it, will, it, will, it will catch up. It always catches up. A, a Christian that gets healthy, and, or that is healthy and gets sick, we sh- should not automatically be judged as being under discipline. That's what the disciples did. That's what the Pharisees did when they kicked the blind man out of the synagogue and said, you were uh, born in sin, and you were 
completely sinful. And there's also something else that what we see in this that we want to be careful with is that this idea here is that you are praying for the sick. In these explicit instructions about sickness, and James is possibly the earliest when there would have been a lot of activity, supernatural activity taking place in the early church when James wrote this. If the gift of healing was an ongoing gift, it seems like James would have instructed the church, get your local healer out to heal this man. But he doesn't give us that instruction. He doesn't give us that instruction because many believe that they still have the gift of healing. Does God heal? Yes. No one gets over anything apart from God's grace and mercy. Let me be super clear. God heals today because no one would get well apart from God's mercy. But do people have the gift of healing as we saw in the apostolic period? No, I don't believe that they do. I remember... Years ago, someone came to my office in another place far from here and said that they had the gift of healing and they had this grin on their face. And I said, let's go down to the Madera Children's Hospital right now and clear it out. And he just looked at me. The grin went away. You know, if, if you have the gift of healing, you are the most selfish person on the face of the earth. And you ought to be locked up. So anyone tells me they have the gift of healing, they're going to get it. But we do see this is that we can come together and pray for healing. He goes on to say and instruct them. That was directed at the elders. Is this, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he moves from directing the elders of the church and what they're supposed to do, then addressing the whole congregation, that therefore confess your sins And then you go into pray, praying for one another that people may be healed. Now, this idea of confession, again, I think it gets a bad rap in Protestant circles and for a wrong reason. Because when you hear the word confession, you think of going into a box and confessing your sins to a priest. That's not what this is talking about. This is not what this is talking about. This is twofold. First of all, when we confess for most important, we are to confess our sins to God. Psalm 51 verse 4 makes it so clear. We are to first and foremost go to our Lord and confess our sins. But, but let's say I offended my brother. I need to go and confess that sin to him. I say, I sinned against you. I need to go and do that to him. I need to confess that sin. Or if a brother sins against me, he needs to come and, and confess that sin. But I think it's twofold. It's sins confessed Uh, that are against someone, but maybe if I have a personal sin that's not directly affecting anybody. We know all sin affects everybody around us, even if it's indirectly. But if it's one of those sins that I'm struggling with that's an indirect sin, I need to go to a trusted brother and a friend, and I need to go to them and confess that sin to them. I need to say, "I, uh, I am struggling with this. And I think that Part of this, with this, comes the idea of repentance. It's confession, which is assuming repentance. Now, 
Here's where I want to focus in our life together on this. First of all, uh, you have to be wise in confession. Now, if you, can, if you sinned against someone, you just need to go to that person and confess it to them and say, I sinned against you. But when you're talking about sins that you might be struggling with, you have to use wisdom in that. You may not want to do that in front of everybody. But this is a means to community health. And so here's a couple of things that I just took, took note of that you, can, you, you could think of many more, I'm sure. But this, in, in terms of it bringing community health, confession actually shuns pride and arrogance from my heart. Doesn't it? If I'm willing to go to someone and say, I'm sinful and I'm struggling with this sin, I'm actually being very vulnerable to that person. So in many ways, confession breaks down pride and arrogance that is in our heart. Confession brings humility both to the person that's confessing and to the person that's receiving that. Because they were chosen as a trusted person that they could go to. Confession welcomes accountability, I think. Because soon, as soon as you tell someone, I'm struggling with this, and I'm thinking of confession of these indirect sins, that person now has right to come up to you and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, how are you doing with that? How can I be praying for you? Do you need help with that? And they also are, in that point, inviting counsel. And here's where we have to get real clear. When someone comes to us and confesses something that they're struggling, it's not a time to quote Dr. Phil. It's a time to get to the Scriptures and show how we have forgiveness in Christ and how by Christ's grace we've actually overcome sin. So it invites not only accountability, but I would say counsel. And we've already seen that we're to instruct, we're to admonish, we're to encourage one another. Confession strengthens trust between parties. Because if you're willing to go to someone and say, I I trust you and I need to come to you and talk to you about this, that I'm struggling, that actually increases that unity of trust. Confession spurs growth between two individuals because now this person's not struggling with the sin by themselves, but they're actually struggling with it with the person that they confess to because now they're going to be walking through this together. And what happens with that of spurring growth, it deepens relationships where you have a greater relationship with people because you've gone to another level in the relationship. So ought we to confess to one another? Yeah. And it's okay to say this. If you are in Christ, your sins are absolved. You've experienced absolution. Not because I say it, because, but because of what Christ has done and accomplished for you on the cross. That's a beautiful thing to say that we shouldn't lose that language. We just have to make sure we articulate it right. Now, confession comes before prayer, and I think that we could make the case that um, not confessing our sins, not repenting of sins, hinders our prayer life. And this right here is still in that context of a sick person and praying for the one that is sick or 
Maybe as it goes on, praying for the one that is straying. Because they've needed to confess their sins. And you're going to see as you get to the final verses, it's going to address the brother that's straying away from the body. But what is this idea here? Is the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, we might think of the super-Christian. There's no such thing. There's just Christians. But he goes on to give an example of Elijah. And now you think, right away, I'm not like Elijah. But guess what the Bible tells us? Elijah was just like one of us. He was a man. He was a sinful man. He was just like one of us, but prayed persistently. You think about this idea as the righteous person praying. What Christian is not righteous? Well, if they're not righteous, they're not a Christian. Because they have an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. Every Christian is a righteous Christian. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 31 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what, he ple- what pleases Him. Jesus says over and over again, ask anything in my name, in my name, that's the qualification, I'll do it. Should we pray for people to get well? Absolutely. And I think as we look at this idea, you see this connected to the story specifically, I think, of in the Gospel of Luke, you, know, you think of the woman diligently seeking for the lost coin. The idea and the focus is on that diligence. The persistent widow who is continually going to the evil, wicked judge. And how much greater is our Heavenly Father than the wicked rulers? And Jesus says this because of the friend asking for food. He says, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. There's this idea of persistency in prayer. Oftentimes, and I think it's because of the noetic effects of the fall, that we have short memory and that we get easily distracted and we just forget. Um, we, we were not as persistent as we could be, but the Scripture calls us to persistent prayer with our Heavenly Father. Our tendency is that we pray one time for something. Okay, I've prayed for it now. But really, I think the Scripture calls us to a persistency in prayer. It's a faithful prayer to the Lord, knowing that the Lord hears and always does what is right. When it talks about a faithful prayer, I believe that that's what it is talking about, one that is trusting in the Lord. And again, The example is not for the one that is an extra special Christian. What does prayer do? Well, prayer shows we are not self-reliant, doesn't it? But we rely upon God. Uh, Prayer joins us together also for a common purpose. That's why we have our prayer notes is so that we can come together and look at the needs of the church here, look at the church locally, but then also consider our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that that desperately need our prayers. So we come together for this common purpose. Prayer is part of our fellowship with God, where we join with one another before God 
Most importantly, prayer is ours by grace. This is a gift God has given us for us to commune with him, to come to him. And where he says that we can call him Father. Now the example is Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning he wasn't, he, he wasn't like half human, half divine or something like that, or he wasn't part angel. He was just like us. And he prayed, here it is, fervently. There's that idea of that persistency in prayer, that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He goes on to say, as his final admonition, after giving an example of a righteous man in prayer, he says, My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the, the brother or the sister that, that strays. And the idea, and the verb is, and this idea of strain is passive, so it's kind of like that they were led astray. Maybe they had been deceived. Maybe some temptation had gotten a hold of them. That doesn't alleviate their responsibility. That's not what it's saying. But you just get the idea that someone gets caught up in something and they're overwhelmed by it and they've strayed away from the church. Now, what this is telling us is that we are to just let that brother or sister go or that we're going to retrieve them. It says that we're to go and retrieve them. We're to go after them. And if they repudiate our attempt at retrieving them, well, there's a good chance they could come into the 1 John 2.19 category. Those that left us were not among us. Although they were part of us, they, they, weren't, they weren't believers. But what do we know? The Lord, by His grace, perseveres His people. He preserves them. The community, the community, he's addressing not just the elders now. He's addressing the whole church is responsible to warn the uh, straying one. And this warning is the means of bringing them to repentance. And their march to death is averted by God's grace. In other words, that we, are the, we can be that instrument that God works through to bring someone back. Now, when a person is known to be strained, what you should know is this, that you might be that person that God's going to use by His grace to turn this person's life around. You think of the joy of that. Because there's a fearful aspect of that when someone's straying away and confronting them because they might, they might rebuff you, they might push you away. Let me say, that's okay. You will be disappointed. People will disappoint you. You will be hurt. But there's also those times where God uses you in someone's life to be that instrument to turn their life around. And it, 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 we need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to go to that brother or sister and go to them so that they might turn around. Now, what we have to do know about this in this is to alleviate the fear. You might receive their wrath, but you actually walk away with a clear conscience. 
because you did what the Lord had called you to do. So, the main things that we want to grab from this tonight is not a debate over whether we anoint someone with oil or not, but rather we want to see that we are to do these two things with our, in our congregation. That is to confess to one another. If you've wronged someone, go and confess to them. Or if you're dealing with something that you're struggling with, go to a trusted brother in the church or sister in the church and um, confess that to them. And then also, we need to gather for prayer. We need to pray for our, our church community. We need to pray for one another. If someone's sick, let us be quick to pray for them and be diligent and be persistent in our prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your mercy and grace to us in that you would use a people such as us to see people healed. That by your grace, by the power that you have of life, that you heal people today. And you heal people through the prayers of your saints. Nothing in us, nothing that we do, but purely by your, your sovereign decision and mercy. We're humbled by the fact that you may use us to see a strained brother or sister return to the church. We pray your grace in giving us that desire. And we pray your, your grace would be poured out upon us that we would desire to be praying together. Be a church that would be quick to confess our sins to one another. And we would be diligent in continually seeking this um, that you give us for a mechanism of unity in our church. And so we pray your grace in that. And Father, as we depart from here, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for this coming Sunday where we will gather to worship. And again, we, we do pray for your help this Saturday as we seek to be a light in this community. And we pray that we'd be a means of seeing people come to know Christ. We would be bold in sharing the gospel. We pray that we would, by your Spirit, be quick with Scripture as we engage with people. And that we wouldn't be afraid to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.